The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Therapeutic Approach to Growth with your host, Brooke Wagner. Each week, this program will focus on interests and expertise pertaining to special needs individuals and their families. We'll help you open up and connect while sharing powerful information. Now, here is Brooke Wagner. Welcome, everyone, to Therapeutic Approach to Growth. I am host, Brooke Wagner. Our goal of the show is to offer support, resources, and most importantly, hope to the special needs community. Today, I have with me Arizona licensed attorney and California special education consultant, Amy Langerman, and we will be discussing client rights, defining key terms, and touching on pertinent information that parents should know as they navigate the IEP process. So welcome, Amy. Hi, Brooke. Nice to see you again. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Um, I know we have had a long history of mutually supporting clients. And reflecting back, it's been an incredible journey, uh, and I feel that I've learned so much from your knowledge and expertise over the years. I'd like to begin with sharing more information about your background. Well, you know, I started out in Arizona where I was born and raised, and I decided to go to law school, and I practiced law in Arizona for 25 years, so I'm a, an old broad, as they say. Uh, and in 2002, I decided to move to California. Arizona has pretty lousy educational systems. I have a son with autism. Uh, and I just seemed like I was working to make money to pay for services that I couldn't get the school districts to pay for that didn't exist in Arizona. Uh, and every summer I would come over here and do my extended school year ESY, and my son would make reams of progress. And I thought, well, I need to figure out how to get over here. So I shut down my practice. I made sure everybody got employed and I decided to do what I'd been doing in Arizona for about eight years. Uh, I'd been doing some pro bono uh, special education work. Uh, There wasn't anybody in Arizona doing it. And so I came over here and decided, well, maybe I can make this my my business. So I did not take the bar here because I'm too darn old, Mm -hmm. but I work with school districts, parents, students, I sit at IEP team meetings. Um, I helped my prior school district where I lived to create a program for children to bring them back from private schools and to allow them to be educated in their home districts. Uh, And I've uh, worked with a lot of kids and had a lot of success and uh, watched them uh, graduate. I have kids now who uh, are in college. Uh, My own son, uh, who got a pretty lousy diagnosis when he was two uh, and was uh, slated to be in a group home. Uh, graduated Phi Beta Kappa from college, uh, wow. took a year to have a real job in the in the real business community, and now is in law school. So uh, truly a remarkable testament to early intervention and, and never giving up. Oh, wow. That's so amazing. And I've met your son before, and that's just an incredible story and a story of real hope and, and perseverance. You know, I have him now come with me to programs when he's in town and to speak to parents about never giving up and his story and his courage and his journey. 
Uh, and I hope someday that maybe he'll be the one to speak in Congress and uh, to fight for early education and early intervention and better services uh, because we didn't have any of the things that parents have now. We didn't have insurance coverage, mm-hmm. behavior uh, therapy. We had nothing. I just worked and paid for it all. It was uh, pretty wow. hard going in those days. So, But I'm, I'm fortunate that he was able to uh, demonstrate the things that enabled him to become successful as he is now. Oh, that's incredible. I love that. I love that. And one of the things that I really wanted to make sure that we did today was to find some key terms. I know there's a lot of terms out there that are thrown around in IEP meetings. And, um, you know, we have families calling us uh, that are finding it incredibly challenging to navigate their IEP process, and they really want to understand their child's rights. So let's take some time to share information about some key terms that you use on a daily basis. Uh, Well, this is, you know, alphabet soup, as we call it. It's filled with acronyms. Mm -hmm. So we start with the IDEA. That's the overarching law that Congress passed years and years ago to try to provide for student rights. Um, It provides some things that are beneficial, other things that create um, issues for parents. But it is the, the law that sets forth the obligations of the school district to provide what is called a FAPE, F A P E. That stands for free and appropriate public education. And appropriate doesn't mean best. It doesn't mean fabulous. It doesn't mean that which will maximize your potential. The standards, unfortunately, are ones that no parent of a neurotypical child would ever be forced to accept, uh, where we have high expectations and demanding curriculum. But for children with special needs, FAPE is met if you make some educational progress. And it turns out Most kids in most programs make some progress. It just has to be some. We have LRE, which is Least Restrictive Environment, and this was uh, part of the law when it was passed in the 70s because we used to segregate kids. And some of your viewers may have heard about what's going on in Georgia where they're being sued right now because they've isolated children and they've locked them into classrooms away from typical peers. And LRE means that we will educate the child in the least restrictive appropriate environment. And there's a continuum. So the least restrictive environment would be general education, where they're sitting next to neurotypical children without any support. Then we would have general education with support. We would have general education with resource support. We would have self-contained classrooms. We would have private schools. We would have home hospital. So from least to most, we're supposed to find the location on the continuum that is least appropriate for the student. And inclusion is something that I've become much more uh, comfortable with uh, because Um, There are some districts in our location here in San Diego which have inclusion specialists that are designed to support children who are in general education. And I've been very, very um, fortunate. Some of my most successful students are students with cognitive disabilities. They will likely never earn a, a general education diploma. They will be in the education system until they're 22 and and likely only have supported work. But they are in general education classrooms all day with their peers, with an aide, and they are benefiting by having adapted curriculum, and it's benefiting the typical children as well to learn tolerance and acceptance and how to be a supportive partner um, and how to recognize that diversity inclusion is a good thing. Absolutely. No, I think that's really, really important, and I think that a lot of parents don't really know how to navigate that process of even deciding 
whether inclusion is the right fit and how to even determine what LRE is for their child. And I think the key is the I in IDEA is individualized. That's what it stands for. And the I in IEP that we write for every student, an individual mm-hmm. education plan, we really have to make these decisions on an individual basis. There mm-hmm. are children who simply will not benefit from an inclusive setting. There are children who really need mm-hmm. a more uh, individualized a one-to-one environment. They need. Uh, there are children who have to be educated in their home because of health reasons. So uh, we really do have to individualize for each child. And even when we have a child who's in a self-contained placement, uh, an ASD class for children with autism, a critical skills class for children with uh, cognitive disabilities, uh, a, a twice-exceptional class for gifted but challenged children, we want to then mainstream them in a general education environment to the greatest extent possible. And not just for recess or lunch, but if they can be included for electives, if they can be included for science, if they can be included for math. Mm-hmm. When my son was in a private program and then came back into a, a self-contained classroom, the first class we included him in that was academic was math. And it was because he had strengths in math and we thought we would be successful there. And it isn't one we often use first, but it, for him, was the one we included him in first. Right, and that makes sense. That makes sense. If he was feeling successful in math, then he could really work on his socialization and being in that, you know, uh, more challenging environment um, so, and work on that specific skill area. Yeah, and, and we were then able to include him in science where they have group projects and, and make sure that we set him up for success with teachers partnering him with students who would be accepting, nurturing. Right. Uh, he was academically talented, and he wasn't. it wasn't as if the other students were being partnered with somebody who was going to bring down their grade. My son often had the highest grades. Right. Uh, but he needed some support socially, and, and he had fine motor issues, and he didn't like to touch anything. <laughs> uh-huh. So uh, he had a little touch of the OCD, so anything messy. So those things, everybody... Uh, needed to recognize were accommodations that we needed to provide for him and the students needed to make sure that they weren't bullying him or or picking on him because he had quirks, what we would call quirks. Right, right. No, that's wonderful. And you mentioned inclusion and mainstreaming. So can you share the difference between those two terms? Sure, and they're used interchangeably and many districts use them interchangeably because they really don't understand what inclusion is. There are actual people now who are trained inclusion specialists. There are programs at San Marcos, Cal State San Marcos, for example, where they're training inclusion. My daughter just started an education program to become a teacher, and the California Department of Education has now mandated that all new teachers have training in inclusion. And inclusion means that your primary placement is a general education classroom. Mm -hmm. You may still have some pull-out services where you go to speech one day a week or you go to the resource room 45 minutes a day. But your primary placement, more than 50% of your day, is in a general education setting Mm -hmm. with or without support. Mainstreaming are for students whose primary placement is in a self-contained classroom where more than 50% of their day is spent outside a general education environment. We would still mainstream them into a general ed environment to the greatest extent possible. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, in most districts, those words are interchanged and, and used as synonyms. 
Okay. Oh, that's really helpful. I think that's something that a lot of people um, get confused about. So that's really helpful to share. So I've read your blog and um, specifically about IQ testing. Ah, my pet peeve. <laughs> Let's um, spend some time sharing why you have concerns about IQ testing and what the law provides about assessment of IQ and general concerns that parents come to you with regarding their child being IQ tested. And, you know, my pet peeve with IQ testing is that while the publishers of IQ testing claim that they're norm for children with disabilities, including autism, the reality is that districts use the scores in ways that are prejudicial to the children because until a child is remediated to the greatest extent of their autism issues, mostly their sensory issues or their communication issues, often what you see when you get an IQ test is extraordinary variability. And you'll have one score that will be 120, with 100 being perfectly average, and one score that's 80. And then the district will take them and provide a full-scale IQ, which is, in essence, an average of the scores, and say, ah, your child's IQ is 80, 85. Well, you know, there's no shame in having an 80 or an 85. But then whatever poor progress you make, they say, well, you know, your child only has an 85 IQ. And that isn't supposed to be what IQ tests are for at all. Mm -hmm. And there is no need except for in some districts that insist upon what we call discrepancy testing for reading disabilities where you look at a child's IQ and subtract from it their reading test. And if you get 22 points or more, voila, you have a reading disability, which, by the way, isn't the only way to diagnose or find eligibility for that. It isn't really necessary. Um, and then they do it, and they get this great variability, and even the publishers would say, if you have more than 15 points between your scales, you should not look to the reliability of an IQ full-scale test. Uh, instead, you should look only at the strengths and weaknesses. But districts, boom, here's your number. Mm-hmm. And, and my pet peeve comes from my own son, because when he was two, somebody insisted on doing an IQ test to get into the system. Mm-hmm. They told me he was less than 55, didn't even hit the scale at 55. When we went into kindergarten, they insisted they had to do another test. By the way, they don't. The law does not require mandatory IQ testing. Mm-hmm. And every three years, they don't require you to look again. They require you to consider whether or not you need to look again, but they insisted. I was not so smart back then. And uh, the new test was going to come up with a 68. I watched the person do it. I thought that she had intentionally misread the instructions and caused my son to likely have a lower score, and I then had to stop her, and I then walked out and wouldn't allow them to finish it uh, and turn it over to the district because I was fairly confident he didn't have an IQ of either 55 or 69, And the reason I was fairly sure is I'd have him privately assessed. And the private assessor, who wasn't, didn't have a a stake in the controversy, had said his IQ was 137. Wow. So, and it turns out IQ doesn't shift significantly Mm -hmm. over your time, no matter what happens. It is what it is. It can go down, but it doesn't really go up Mm -hmm. unless it's being impacted by other things so that they're not really able to see what the IQ actually is. And everybody who knows my son knows that he's cognitively high-functioning, meaning above mm-hmm. 115 right. uh, in his IQ, yet he was testing at 55 right? And, and because he was profoundly impacted by his autism. So I don't like it. I think that um, it, 
is misused. There's actually research, if you read my blog, that of something, uh, a phenomenon where if teachers know what your IQ is, they uh, set expectations. So if they think you're lower, they don't expect very much from you. And if they think you're higher, they expect more. And that if you change their expectation, so you make them think that the student Mm-hmm. is higher functioning, the student actually does better because of how the teacher's teaching them. Mm-hmm. So it's called the Pythagorean, or, uh, oh, I don't remember the name of it anymore. Uh, it's some scientific uh, mm-hmm. phenomenon. And so I think it's better uh, to just not know. I have parents who um, I say, you know, I really need to know your child's IQ as we're getting into transition to see if, you know, he really legitimately can earn a diploma. Mm-hmm. And uh, they say, I don't want to know. So I'm going to have them privately assessed, Amy, and you can know, but I won't know. Because right. they also don't want to prejudge. Right. And so, unfortunately, there are school districts that will sue you if you refuse. Mm. And so you just have to, you know, suck it up sometimes. And I spend a lot of my times at IEP meetings going in and telling the psychologist they interpreted it wrong. Right. And they all go, oops, okay. Mm-hmm. I made a mistake because if there's more than 15 points, you're not supposed to get a, you're not supposed to compute a full-scale IQ. And they all know that, they all were trained that, but they all also were told, get a number so that we have a defense if the child doesn't make progress. Because children with autism almost always look lower. Right, right. They're as Particularly when they're younger and they're impacted by communication and sensory. So that's my pet peeve. Uh, I used to just say no, but now districts will sue. So now if the parent has had to endure an IQ test, I will go in and embarrass the school psychologist. And I keep a list of all the silly school psychologists who have demonstrated their incapability of uh, interpreting an IQ test. No, oh, I think that um, it's a really important topic. And I'm wondering, is there are there other tests that could be done to provide well, pertinent information? Well, interesting that you ask that because there was a study that children, particularly higher-functioning children with autism, that if you give them the Ravens test, which is what we use for gifted education mm-hmm. in the olden days, that the children will do quite well. And that it, I don't know what it is about the Ravens test. I'm not an expert in it. But so there are certain tests that uh, because of the way they're designed, the child will do better. I know in certain nonverbal tests, the children will do much better. And I find it interesting that with children with communication deficits, many districts will only do a verbal test and not a nonverbal test when there are nonverbal components to all these tests. And I wonder why. Are they intentionally trying to get the lower number? They don't want to have a a higher functioning child with autism and maybe have to provide supports in a general education environment, which is much more challenging and often more expensive for a district. Many are not really competent at doing that. And it's so much easier just to put them over here in our autism program and then kind of not have to deal with them. So. Uh, I think sometimes there are there is some of that, and but you know if you have someone like me who can go in and see through the the numbers, I think we get to the bottom of it, and ultimately the child's needs are being met, and the number becomes just that a number that nobody pays much heed to. Right, right. Okay, well, thank you. That was really helpful and um, very educational for me to hear. And um, we're going to take a quick break, and um, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about um, assessments. So um, with that, we'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Therapeutic Approach to Growth. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also reach Brooke Wagner via email to bwagner at tagforgrowth.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back. Brooke Wagner here, host, and I have with me Arizona licensed attorney and California special education consultant, Amy Langerman. And um, before the break, we were talking about IQ testing, and I'd like to spend just a little bit of time talking about assessments, um, some tips for parents regarding assessments. So it's just a few things that would be helpful for them to know. Yeah. Um, you know, it, a lot of it depends on at what point in the process they're being assessed. Districts will typically seek reassessment every three years. And there are certain reassessments that I think are often very positive, academic testing, why we can get apples to apples assessment every three years and just make sure that uh, on what whatever assessment is being done that it is showing apples to apples comparison. What happens, however, is that sometimes districts either intentionally or, or unintentionally, will choose different tests. And then it's hard to get that apples to apples. And it's hard for a parent to know because the California and Arizona Department of Education, I think around the country as well, authorize districts to use generic assessment plans. So the parent will get a form that says, we intend to assess your child in all areas of suspected disability. And then there's a bunch of check marks. They say academic, processing, cognitive, social-emotional, other. And the parent has no idea what's actually being done. And they have no obligation to tell you, but if you ask, they often will. So if you ask them, what assessments are you doing? And the district comes back and says, well, gee, we don't really know. I often will tell parents, ask to get their first choice because they always know what they're going to start with. And find out, are they going to do a Woodcock-Johnson or a Wyatt? Those are two academic tests. They're both fine tests. But why would you want one over the, over the other? Is three years earlier they did the Woodcock-Johnson. You probably would like to have the Woodcock-Johnson again just so that you have something to that's the same to compare. Similarly, in processing assessment, if they check the box for processing, the parent would want to ask, 
which processing tests are you doing? Are you testing auditory processing, visual processing, sensory processing? They should be testing probably all three. And particularly if you have a child with reading issues, you want to be looking at visual processing. There may be some tracking issues that may have to go outside. Children with autism may present with auditory processing problems, Mm -hmm. and those are hard to ferret out, and districts don't like to do that. So these are things, at least you'll know what they're asking to do, and you then can consent with informed, uh, uh, informed consent. And there's a little box on the form about, authorizing additional tests and I often will say make sure you say that you will only authorize tests in writing because what happens is you show up and they did something you had no idea was going to be done and they say oh well we spoke to you about it and the parent will say no they didn't and oh yes we did you just don't remember Mm -hmm. and then of course it's the dumb parent defense you know some parent really wasn't asked anything but they blame the parent anyway so if that box is checked that you'll only agree to add to the plan by writing then there can't be any a disagreement. They get 60 days to assess. Um, if your child has issues with communication uh, or if they're further along in the process educationally, fourth, fifth grade, uh, you probably want to have either augmentative communication or assistive technology assessment. They don't just pony up and do that automatically. You have to ask for it. Um, children with nonverbal autism or low verbal autism often benefit from a communication device, mm-hmm. but they insist that you be assessed for that. Children with disabilities, reading disabilities, um, uh, expressive writing disabilities benefit from assistive technology. Uh, and so there's all sorts of reasons to to seek that down the road. Um, but, you know, the reality is they get to assess first. They assess. They get 60 days. You come and you look at it. Mm-hmm. And if you disagree, if you don't like what they did, there are some rights that you can can invoke at that point in time. Okay. No, that's really helpful. And um, if a district assesses and the parent disagrees with the assessment, what can the parent do? Uh, the, the IDEA provides for something called an independent educational assessment. And you can say, I disagree with the assessment. I would like to have an independent educational assessment. The district doesn't have to give that to you, but the district only gets two choices in responding to that. They either have to give it to you and pay for it at public expense, meaning you don't pay for it, mm-hmm. or two, they have to file due process against you, and they have the burden to prove that their original assessment was appropriate. Most of the times, it's going to be reasonably easy for them to prove that their assessment was appropriate, because most of the time, the parent isn't really disagreeing with how the assessment was done, but they don't like the results. Um, and the law says if they did it appropriately and they assess you across the spectrum, then that's good Uh, But sometimes that's something that is beneficial. There's processes to do it. What happens if they put caps on it? How much money you can do? There's all sorts of ins and outs. I actually wrote a five-part series on my blog um, at www.amylangerman.com because I was getting so many questions from parents about districts authorizing an IE and then allowing $300, and nobody will do it for $300, or authorizing an IE and insisting to be done with Dr. Smith. And how independent is it if they choose the doctor? So uh, I have a whole blog about that, uh, and I would refer parents to that because it really is uh, a process that uh, can be tricky, uh, but uh, there are some ways to navigate it that make it a little easier. Okay. Okay. No, that's helpful. I think that that's something that is very tricky, as you mentioned, and I think a lot of people don't really know that process and they don't know their rights. And so, you know, having a resource on your blog is probably a really helpful tool to refer families to. So um, that's wonderful. 
Now, I know we touched on inclusion earlier um, and we compared it to mainstreaming. I'd like to talk more about it in detail. So um, I know this is something that um, is, is a strong area for you. And so can you share, you know, why this is such a hot button issue? Well, you know, obviously it's a hot button issue because the law requires least restrictive environment. But from my own personal experience, it's interesting my own evolution because when my son was in getting into the kindergarten transition process from preschool, Everybody agreed he needed to be in an inclusive setting. He was high-functioning on an academic kind of side of things and cognitively, and he was socially and language-wise very low and sensorily challenged. And the thought was he would benefit from having typical peers. And it was a miserable failure. Despite the fact that he truly was one of the smartest kids in the class, Mm -hmm. it was a miserable failure. The kids picked on him. They used him for their own enjoyment. He fortunately didn't understand much of that was going on. Um, But later in his life, when he actually had his first friendship, he realized then what had happened before. And it was very emotionally distressing for him to realize that he had been bullied. Um, And this was a recurrent problem over his educational career with people picking on him because they saw him as a quirky kid. And I was successful in finding a private day school, a non-public school for children with learning differences that was a good place for him. And the minute I put him there, it was like, Oh, I'm never leaving this place. He's happy. There are no bullies, small classes. I don't have to deal with these people from the district. And I realized that for him to be successful in the mainstream world, he would have to come back to the mainstream world. We couldn't protect him as much. And and he needed to be back there to learn how to have friendships or to try to learn to self-advocate when bullies came up. And as hard as it was, I had to put him back. And and then when I started seeing the options in self-contained classes that were like bad to worse, mm-hmm. and particularly for children with cognitive disabilities, it's like we give up on them early. Oh, they have cognitive disabilities. They need to be in our community helpers program. Mm-hmm. That's code for we're going to teach them how to sweep. Mm-hmm. Or they need to be in our health program. That's code for teaching them to brush their teeth. Mm-hmm. Or they need to learn recreational skills. That's code for they sit and play bingo while the teacher sits in the back and does paperwork. I have more mm-hmm. um, hope and expectations for children, even with cognitive disabilities. Mm-hmm. So I had to learn how the inclusion process might be successful for even children with cognitive disabilities. Mm-hmm. And I had a program manager say to me, for a child with a cognitive disability that was fully included and we were getting ready to move them into sixth grade, you know, they do plate tectonics, Amy, in sixth grade. It's earth mm-hmm. science. Mm-hmm. What benefit do you think that will be for, we'll call him Billy? And I literally leaned across the table and I said, what benefit was plate tectonics for you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because the reality is all of us had plate tectonics right. when we were in school, and none of us use it. It's a useless curriculum. But we expect everyone to do it, so why do we not expect children with special needs to do it? Right. And the benefit to him was amazing. Why? Because he was included with his peers. Mm-hmm. He did a presentation on volcanoes. It had six PowerPoint slides, each with one picture and one sentence. Why? Because he had a goal on his IEP. When given a picture, we'll write a complete sentence with five to six words with a subject, a verb, and an object. Mm -hmm. So he wrote a complete sentence at his instructional level about a volcano. And then we put them together in a PowerPoint, and he read them. Mm -hmm. And he got a standing ovation from his peers. And to this day, he remembers Mm -hmm. having his peers 
applaud for him. So it was extraordinarily meaningful. So I've come full circle. It isn't for everybody. I have a number of children who I have in self-contained placements, who I have in non-public schools, who I have in uh, home programs. Right. And so again, it has to be individualized, but I don't just shut my eyes to it anymore. And I don't just jump at that the chance just because, well, it's least restrictive. We have to push it uh, for everyone. There mm-hmm. are some districts who just don't do it very well. Mm-hmm. There are other districts who do it better. Right. And sometimes you're just stuck with where you are and you want to have the child be as successful as he can be. So you figure out how to make do with what exists and make it work as well as possible for the child. And that's what I do every day. Right. Wow. That's amazing. It is such a tricky process to navigate that. And it's a lot of, you know, monitoring and adjusting to based on how the child's doing and the supports they're getting. And um, one of the things you mentioned was an NPS. And I don't know if everybody knows what an NPS is. Oh, non-public school. In Arizona, we call them private day schools. Non-public schools are schools that are exclusively for children with disabilities. And so there are no typical children there. And there are schools that specialize. So you have non-public schools that specialize in children with communication disabilities or low-functioning autism or who are diploma-bound but have emotional disabilities and they can't be on a comprehensive campus because of school fear issues, school phobia issues. So uh, school districts are reluctant to send students there. They are expensive. But for certain students who really can't be educated on a comprehensive campus, they exist. The state certifies them. And they serve a niche for those uh, kids and provide their free and appropriate public education paid for by the school district. Okay, that's helpful. I know we have a lot of really nice ones here in San Diego um, that many of our clients here at TAG go to, and I think it's important to mention that that's an additional option if it's appropriate. Right. So uh, let's talk about curriculum. (laughs) I know you're really knowledgeable on curriculum. I've heard you talk about it many times in IEP meetings. Uh, Can you share some key tips for parents um, pertaining to curriculum? Well, I guess there's two issues with curriculum. There's uh, issues called common core um, that many of us are now facing and with our neurotypical children not understanding mm-hmm. and teachers not understanding how to teach. Um, and you try to ask a fourth grade teacher to show you how to explain something to your special needs child and they're clueless because they're trying to teach them common core instead of figuring out the accommodation and adaptions to make the Common Core meaningful for a child with disabilities. So that's what we would find in an inclusive setting, and that is present and and there, and that's why sometimes it's just not a good fit for students because Common Core is very language-based. You have to explain why 2 plus 2 is 4 and not just that it's 4, and you have to explain it in a way that for a child with a communication deficit may be challenging. But for children with special needs, and many of the phone calls I get, it's, again, the alphabet soup acronym thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the parent has tried something or read about something or learned about it, HBO, RDI at TAG, RPM, Rapid Prompt Method, LMB, Linda Mood Bell. I want it. They think it's the panacea, and they want the school district to do it. How can I get the school district, Amy, for example, with TAG, to do RDI? in a school setting. And and I unfortunately have to say to parents, that's what we call not really a curriculum issue, but a methodology issue. There are many good behavior programs. There are many good math programs. There are many good reading programs. LMB is one. RDI is a good behavior program. But there are many. And school districts get to choose. If they choose one that's appropriate and reasonable, they get to choose. 
And the fact that the parent wants something else, the parent thinks something's better, the fact that something actually might be better, turns out that's not the standard. If you're making some progress on whatever the district has chosen, they get to choose. The exception is if the methodology is actually necessary for FAPE, if the child can't make some progress without the methodology. And we find this the most concurrent uh, and frequent time that we see this is with children with cochlear implants who are deaf. For them, there is only one methodology, and that's to teach them to speak through their cochlear implant what they're hearing. So if you're trying to teach them sign language, that's counterintuitive to what the medicine people have put into their head. So for those children to receive FAPE, they use a different methodology. And those children get to choose because it's necessary for FAPE. But for most of the methodologies, it's very difficult to prove that something's necessary. You and I, Brooke, have have had that many times uh, with parents who thought that RDI was absolutely necessary, nothing else. Uh, We've uh, been successful once. Mm -hmm. Um, And a case that I don't think any parent would ever want to have to replicate to be in a fight with their district as, as awful as those fights were um, to get for that child what he needed to get faith. So it's often a very um, distressing uh, issue for parents when they are insistent on something uh, that they can't get. And then they seek to sue the district to try to get it and they're unsuccessful. Uh, And then there's all sorts of bad feelings. People have spent money. Um, and it's never a, a, a good a good situation to be in. Right, right. Now, do you feel that when the parents are um, trying to get a certain curriculum or methodology, that they have to to prove that the methodology that is currently being used or the curriculum that's currently being used is not effective? Right, and that's the pretty much the only way to do it. Is the district will come in and say the student is making progress. And the parent says, no, they're not. The district says, yes, they are. Well, trying to prove the district professionals are lying is often a, a, a losing proposition. But this is the benefit, for example, of assessing a child. If you had an assessment done every three years and you look at apples to apples assessment and the student was at 98 in year one and three years later is at 68 and the district saying, made fabulous progress. You're sitting there going, no, you didn't. Here's objective evidence on your testing that the child didn't make progress. Mm -hmm. And so it's one measure. Obviously, there are many ways to measure progress. Districts often will, if a child isn't doing well, dumb the goals down so that the child looks like he's making progress instead of trying to find a more appropriate way to allow the child to make progress. So it is a very challenging issue, and it often results in what is perceived as calling them liars, which often does make for very bad feelings. Not that I haven't had to do it before. Mm-hmm. Um, I have. And it is uh, it is no fun, mm-hmm. uh, even when you are successful at doing it. It is right. no fun. Right. Um, I have proved it. I've had a judge put a footnote saying he felt the teacher was lying about her data mm-hmm. and that she'd falsified data. Um, and it's no fun because the poor kid is the one who was suffering. So, right. uh, But, yes, typically in order to get... Um, any chance at changing methodology. And even then, you may not get to choose which one. They'll go pick a different one. Um, But this often happens with reading curricula, with children with dyslexia or specific reading learning disabilities. The district has chosen one program and the child doesn't do very well. The testing confirms the child didn't do well. They pick another one, all of which are decent reading Mm -hmm. programs. But for this child, 
something else was necessary. And oftentimes proving it means the child failed. Right. That's just, it's a tough situation all the way around. Nobody enjoys that yeah, process. Who wants to see the child fail? No. And it just, you know, as you said, it creates that, that challenge and that conflict. So, um, but it's an important topic to discuss. So um, we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back in a few minutes. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Transformational healing includes energy medicine as well as hands-on healing. Tune in every week to Transformational Healing with Dr. Bonnie Morrow. If you want to know more about the business and science of energy fields, chakras, and the medical and spiritual community, join our expert guests as we work together to bring you closer to your personal health vision. Transformational Healing is heard live every Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Biohacking for Health is working with your individual biology to gain access to and control over the systems within your body. It allows you to explore your biology and improve health and wellness. Each of us has unique genetic profiles and physiology that require individualized approaches. On Biohacking for Optimal Health, Dr. Daniel Stickler and his expert guests provide a roadmap to navigate the world of biohacking human potential. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Therapeutic Approach to Growth. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also reach Brooke Wagner via email to bwagner at tagforgrowth.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back. Uh, host Brooke Wagner, and today I have with me Arizona licensed attorney and California special education consultant Amy Langerman. And um, Amy, I would love to take a moment to share and hear a little bit um, about some of your most memorable success stories. You know, I, I think most people would say my son is probably my most memorable success story. But I had to file five due process cases over his educational career in order to get the districts to do what they were supposed to do. And so, you know, personally, I I guess that's a a little challenging. No parent ever wants to have to do that. It creates all sorts of antagonism um, and, and retaliation and all sorts of other things. Um, while that those rights are there for parents to protect their children, and sometimes you need to go hire an attorney. That's what I do in Arizona. Um, it's really not uh, my most successful kinds of situations. Mm-hmm. I think um, I have a young boy. We'll just we'll call him Billy. I've been working with him since he was uh, in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a cognitive disability. He has Down syndrome. And he came to me as a child fully included because the Down Syndrome Society recommends that for children. And the district was trying to push him out because he had behavior. And I went in to look, and his behavior was due to the fact that the aide and the teacher were negatively reinforcing it. Um, They weren't doing that intentionally. They just weren't very well trained. And the district was using it as a stepping stone to just 
downstream him, that's the word we use, to put him into a critical skills class so they never had to deal with him and no teacher had to see him again. And they really just didn't like looking at him. And I made them through using the IDEA and the procedures that are in there, do a behavior assessment. I was able to get a very good aid assigned to him from a non-public agency, similar to TAG. Mm -hmm. And he's had the same agency and the same set of aids since he was in first grade. And he ruled the roost in middle school. Mm -hmm. Everybody knew who he was. Mm -hmm. He's in high school now. He's taking Spanish class. And they looked at me like I was crazy with him when I said, well, he wants to take Spanish. (laughs) And I looked at the speech therapist. I said, he has an articulation deficit. Can you work on that with Spanish words as opposed to English words? And she said, yes, I can. (laughs) And I said, fabulous. Let's (laughs) let's do this. And I said, and by the way, next year he wants to be in AP World Literature. Mm -hmm. And they looked at me like I was insane. He, he can't access AP literature. And I, I said, look, whatever history class he's in, we're going to have to modify it for right. him. Why can't we modify that one? Right. Why can't he be with the high functioning kids? Mm-hmm. And what we do for him is with each unit, we pick the core things for him to learn. So when he studied the bones of the body in seventh grade, all the kids were accountable for 30 bones and 30 muscles. Mm-hmm. He was accountable for five bones and five muscles, and his mm-hmm. skeleton had fewer things. We accommodated it for him. And he ended up learning 11 because he mm-hmm. wanted to be like his peers. And those kids um, treat him with respect. Mm-hmm. They treat him with dignity. He speaks to them like a typical child speaks to another child. Obviously, he has language issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has the rest of his life to learn the community helpers curriculum and to mm-hmm. to to do whatever it is that the district is going to try to do for him when he's 18 to 22 but for now he's um happy mm-hmm. excited and he gets invited out and he has buddies and i i'm thrilled to be a part mm-hmm. of his team and he got a, a i made sure his parents got him a phone for his eighth grade graduation because all kids have phones and the first phone number that was in there was mine. So he sends me texts. <laughs> Hi, Miss Amy. It's oh, me. Wow. <laughs> and it's really cute. So I'm very proud of him. That is a beautiful success story. And just seeing you talk about it, I can see the pride I in your it. mannerisms. It makes me just everything's mean. accomplished. You know, and I think what's so important is he's been treated with respect and dignity and he's been honored as a human being and valued. And and you're assuming and that competence. But there's one other thing that you need to know because, you know, the district didn't really like having to deal with him. And in sixth grade, they did make some some efforts to try to remove him again. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, they realized they weren't going to be successful. So they, in essence, walked away and allowed the teachers to teach. Mm-hmm. And I came to his IEP meeting uh, in March of sixth grade. And I sat around the room as each general education teacher reported on his progress, two of whom cried, talking about what he brought to their classroom and how the other children worked harder to behave better and to be respectful children because they didn't want Billy, we'll call him, Mm -hmm. to pick up bad behaviors. Mm -hmm. By eighth grade, they all fought the general ed teachers to have him in their class (laughs) Because of what he would do for the rest of the kids, Mm -hmm. because they all were working at much higher levels, because they wanted him to be successful. Mm -hmm. It was truly a collaborative, impressive process. And and when it works, it's a beautiful thing. Right. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that is so important to mention because it is benefiting our community as a whole. And I think that's really valuable. And I know for me firsthand in high school, I had three uh, students that had Down syndrome and they were a part of our community. We saw them socially. We appreciated them. And then they worked in our community, you know, following graduation. And it was a wonderful experience for me to have. And, and, you know, now with the prevalence of autism and, you know, 20 years ago when my son was diagnosed, nobody knew anybody who had any, who had a child with autism. If they existed, they were in the shadows. Now it's one in 55 and, and you go to a grocery store and you can, you can spot the child with autism. There are TV shows with children with autism. And I'm hopeful that 10 years from now, uh, we will have educated children today about diversity and inclusion and that just because you're different doesn't mean that uh, you're subjected to different treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, My son, who um, really had a hard time with bullying and being treated differently, even though he was in AP classes and the smartest kid on the block, they recognized that he was quirky and socially weak and they they feed on that and you know it was the mean girls who did it mm-hmm. and and he actually you know thought about um, committing suicide as mm-hmm. many children do mm-hmm. and he instead decided to start an organization to educate children and to end hate behavior and to promote diversity and, and acceptance and in our district it went from a, a district where 60% of the students had experienced personally or seen others subjected to hate behavior to being the number one district in the county for wow. the least incidence of discipline and and you know bad negative problems um, and because they had adopted a first offender program they had worked to educate the students they had promoted inclusion and tolerance and, and curriculum brought in mm-hmm. to teach about um, acceptance and perspective taking and to treat everybody with respect. So I'm hopeful that as the inclusion movement is is the law and it's mm-hmm. now the fact and teachers are being trained and we're right. getting specialists, uh, that this will also result in a more tolerant society, um, less bullying, less bully sides as they call them, mm-hmm. and uh, that we will have better outcomes because the research supports both for children with autism and Down syndrome that mm-hmm. inclusive settings result in better outcomes. Right. That's what we want for all these children is for everybody to be successful um, to the extent that they can be. And if we get better outcomes, that means better success. Oh, that's wonderful. No, I love that. Um, Now, you mentioned behaviors a little bit. I want to take a um, closer look at them. I know we've worked together on a few cases that involve behaviors. And so let's touch on some key tips that parents should be aware of related to behavioral issues. You know, the first thing that I tell parents with special needs is not to be afraid of the behavior plan. Is they, oh, my child's going to get labeled as a behavioral child, but it's one for their protection because, gosh forbid, they do something really bad um, and, you know, they bring the toy gun to school and they're going to get expelled because they didn't realize that that's a bad thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, If we have a behavior plan for impulsive behaviors or things like that, it can protect them from that. But more significantly for children with autism or other issues that manifest as behavior, a behavior plan that's carefully crafted by a behavior specialist, and this is where we really need to fight for competent, qualified people, either districts bringing in outside people such as yourself or or an ABA uh, agency or to hire somebody inside. Districts now often will have their own a behavior specialist who's specially trained to come in and look at behavior and to do, again, we have some more acronyms, FBA, Functional Behavioral Assessment, mm-hmm. to look at why the child's having behavior. Is is the child trying to escape 
doing something? Is the child trying to get attention? Uh, is the child sensorily dysregulated and, and acting out for that reason? Or is it because the child's trying to communicate and can't? Right. And so they're hitting you instead because they can't say, help me, or I hurt, or it's too loud. So they hit you. Right. And you then take them outside and they get what they need, which is to be removed from the environment. Um, and so a functional behavioral assessment will look at why the child is behaving and to try to teach the child a replacement behavior, another acronym we use, FERB, functionally equivalent replacement behavior, to give the child the same benefit. So if the child's hitting you because they're trying to communicate, we would teach them to raise their hand or to tap you on the shoulder. Mm -hmm. If the child's hugging you because they're trying to say hi, we would teach the child to do a high five instead mm -hmm. because we don't want children to hug other people that could be considered harassing, uh, particularly if it's a male student hugging a female student. They, mm -hmm. they don't like that. So getting the information in a functional behavioral assessment, writing a good behavior plan, having somebody supervise that either in the district or privately, and taking data to make sure the child's actually improving, and making sure that the staff who are implementing it are not inadvertently negatively reinforcing the behavior. Mm -hmm. um, oh, the child's uh, uh, hitting me because they, they want my attention, and then they immediately take them outside, and it turns out the child's hitting them so that they can escape work. The minute you take them outside, boom, they've escaped work. Mm -hmm. They got exactly what they wanted. So you need to make sure it's a it's an art form mm -hmm. um, that you're not going to reinforce this. The other tip that I would tell parents, because I think it's the most important uh, lesson I've learned, is behavior by itself is not a reason to remove a child from an inclusive setting. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes a child will be in a general education setting and they jump out of their seat or they... Uh, laugh out loud or they drop under the table and instantly the district says they need to be put in a self-contained placement. Mm -hmm. And they do this because uh, they don't want to pay for a private aid to come in uh, or district aid. They don't want to have a behavioral assessment, which is time-consuming, data-driven, expensive. And it's easier just to put them over here where we have a place for them and not have to deal with them anymore. And if you don't first assess what's causing the behavior, you're assuming that it's the environment. Mm -hmm. And the only reason to change the student's environment is because the environment is contributing to whatever the problem is. Either the child can't access the education, and even with adaptions and accommodations, mm -hmm. or the environment is causing the student to become dysregulated and, and have more behaviors. And we can't force them to turn all the lights off for all the students because teachers can't teach in the dark. We can't force them to all speak quietly because teachers have to speak so everybody can hear. So if the child needs that, then we need to find a different environment. Mm -hmm. But absent an assessment, a good one, by someone trained in principles of functional behavioral assessment and positive behavioral intervention, you're likely going to get an answer that's go directly to a self-contained place, lower your expectations, dumb it down, because after all, now you have behavior. So I do fight against that because I think with competent staff and a good behavior plan, mm -hmm. most children can, who have behavior, that can be addressed. Okay, that's great. And we just have a few minutes, so I want to make sure that our listeners know um, where you currently offer services. Oh, I do. 
Yeah. Um, I am I am fairly limited because I, I tend to work in my geographical location. People ask me, oh, Amy, will you come up and work with me in Orange County? Or, oh, Amy, will you come work with me here? I mean, it's expensive for parents uh, to do that. And the truth is I'm old. <laughs> and, and so I'm, I'm set in my ways. And more importantly, there are a few districts that I've really worked with a lot. And I know what services they have. They can't play games with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I tend to focus on those districts. I can't help everybody. So I have a website, www.amylangerman.com. It has a lot of information that I've acquired over the years, resources for parents, links for parents, mm-hmm. um, websites that they can go to, Down Syndrome Society, Autism Society, TAG, mm-hmm. uh, where you can just click on a link and, and find things by subject matter. Uh, I do a lot of work with transition services for children who are uh, 16 to 22, and I have information about that there. And I do post a blog, not as often as I should, uh, about things that I've learned and and things that parents should uh, be wary of. So they can contact me through my website. Okay. Well, that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here today. This is so informative, and I really appreciated it. And um, with that, um, we're going to be on next Tuesday at 11 Pacific Standard Time, and have a wonderful day. Thank you again for listening. Be sure to tune in to Therapeutic Approach to Growth and join Brooke Wagner again every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.